Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife with your bariatric team from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. My name is Dr. Haskins, and I am joined with uh, Dr. McBride as well as Dr. Tanner. And we thought that today we would talk about one of the more common uh, cases that we see after bariatric surgery, which is a marginal ulcer. And Dr. McBride is going to start us off with a bit of a case presentation. Thank you. So this is a patient that actually um, we saw about this time last year. Uh, She's a longstanding patient of mine. She was a 45-year-old woman who was about two and a half years after her laparoscopic Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. I had done her using a laparoscopic uh, linear stapled technique. Um, My standard technique is a 30 uh, purple load and then closing the common anerotomy with an absorbable VLOC suture. Prior to her gastric bypass, she'd had hypertension treated with lisinopril and diabetes treated with metformin, but she was now completely off these medications. She had been a one pack per day smoker, but she had quit as part of the preoperative process. She had kept all of her standard postoperative follow-up and had been doing very well with the weight loss process. However, at approximately this time uh, last year, uh, in that week between Christmas and New Year's, she presented to the emergency department with new onset of a boring epigastric pain that she said radiated through to her back, but to nowhere else. It was associated with some nausea that had been going on for about four to five days, occasional vomiting, but no hematemesis but no other symptoms, no fevers, chills, no change in her bowel habit. She had been able to eat, um, but had noticed some decrease in her ability to drink. And she felt like she was having difficulty maintaining her hydration. Her urine was a little more concentrated and she was concerned about dehydration, which was part of what brought her to the emergency department. Corey, this sounds like a very typical case that we see for marginal ulcers. When I first think, and I get this call either from the resident or the fellow from the emergency department, one of the first things I think of, since this does sound like a very typical marginal ulcer, is what are their risk factors? So can you discuss for us some of those risk factors? Absolutely. Well, certainly when I was called uh, that week, uh, the things I kind of asked about were because she was a former smoker, had she returned to smoking? And unfortunately, in her case, she had. Uh, The stress of the holiday season had resulted in returns to a couple of the behaviors that we very actively discourage in our bariatric patients in general, but specifically in our gastric bypass patients. Um, A little before Thanksgiving, she had started smoking again, and she was back up to a one-pack-per-day smoker. Uh, She had actually injured her back, lifting um, her holiday decorations as they'd been setting them up also about a month before, and she'd forgotten about not using the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and so she had been using uh, over-the-counter NSAIDs, and um, um, she had probably used more alcohol in the last month than she used uh, in the entire prior two years uh, since her gastric bypass. 
She was not a steroid user of any kind. She was not immunosuppressed in any way. And those are really the kind of um, risk factors that I usually question people about. Of course, I did run through with the residents other potential causes of abdominal pain. She did not have a gallbladder anymore. It had been removed long prior to her gastric bypass. She had not really, other than her laparoscopic cholecystectomy, she had never had any previous surgeries. So while certainly bowel obstructions are possible from adhesive disease, since all of her previous surgeries were laparoscopic, I thought that was less likely, but certainly not impossible. So thank you for that review of the risk factors. So again, to recap, alcohol, smoking, caffeine, and medications such as NSAIDs or steroids are very common causes of this. When I'm first thinking about this, there are two types of patients that present our typical marginal ulcer patient or patient who unfortunately has presents with a perforated marginal ulcer. Um, uh, Dr. Haskins, can you discuss what some of the imaging modalities that you would potentially uh, obtain to rule out a perforation? Yeah. So I think typically um, when a patient like this is in our emergency room, in addition to the risk factors we discussed, a lot of times, unfortunately, at two and a half years, they're no longer taking their antacid medication either. So they've lost their protection um, of that anastomosis. Um, in the ER, typically we're called after a CT scan is obtained. Um, so that's usually the most common imaging modality that we see when these patients are in the emergency room. A lot of times it's done without contrast, which is fine because we can typically see free air if it's a perforated ulcer. Obviously, it's helpful for us if they do get oral contrast even a little bit right before they go on to the CT scanner table because um, any sort of active extravasation from the actual perforation is helpful for us in terms of surgical planning. If we see the patient in the clinic, you know, I think it's kind of dealer's choice whether we get a CT scan with oral contrast or we get an upper GI with a small ball follow through. Both of those modalities can really help us identify and or rule out both, you know, an, a marginal ulcer, an internal hernia, or other sort of adhesive disease that may be causing the patient's abdominal pain. I think that's a good point. In general, patients, uh, we're not really worried about patients who are perforated marginal ulcer in the clinic, and that's something that has a much higher likelihood when we're seeing our patients in the emergency department. I think it's really important to discuss the different types of oral contrast that you can give because they really make a difference. Can you briefly discuss that? So I think the real difference... The differences are clearly whether you're talking about using barium versus whether you're using gastrographin. With uh, gastrographin, we're going to with you're going to see that's usually radiology's first um, choice, but sometimes you don't see the smaller perforations, so sometimes they will follow that with barium. They don't like using gastrographin if there's a high risk of um, aspiration because obviously aspiration, gastrographin aspiration can be catastrophic. On the other hand, they don't like using barium if there is a high risk of perforation because barium peritonitis is also a very significant risk factor. Um, so having a good conversation with your radiologist is always a good idea you know, if you think there is a perforation so that they know what they're doing. I think as surgeons, though, sometimes we're a little less worried about it because if there's a perforation, we're immediately going to take them to the operating room and wash that out. I think that's great advice. Um, uh, can 
you also touch on, you know, some more of the other laboratory workup that we would consider in these types of patients? Well, certainly. So for this woman in particular, and, and as Dr. Haskins touched on, you know, the, the emergency department colleagues usually have begun a workup. And so she had already had a complete blood count, which did not demonstrate a leukocytosis, which might have pointed us to a perforation. Um, her hemoglobin and hematocrit were actually slightly elevated, which pointed us away from a bleeding ulcer and actually towards the dehydration, which I was expecting from her clinical history. Her, uh, she had gotten a complete uh, metabolic panel, which also pointed towards some mild electrolyte disturbances and some dehydration. Uh, she did not have L, um, abnormalities in her liver function tests. So we eventually we, we need to talk about other things in the differential. So everything about this case is pointing us towards a marginal ulcer. But especially when a gastric bypass patient presents to the emergency department, you don't want to get tunnel vision. You have to remember the other uh, acute or semi-acute causes of abdominal pain, particularly internal hernias and intussusceptions. And certainly internal hernia, one of the problems can be afferent limb syndrome, which can give them abnormal liver function tests from afferent limb syndrome and even a cholangitis type picture. So you have to remember to look at those liver function tests and keep internal hernia in your differential diagnosis. But in her case, she did not have that. Because she's at 45, still a reproductive age female, she did get a pregnancy test in, case, in before she got the CAT scan, plus in case we had needed to operate on her. Um, and our, our, I'm sorry, our emergency department, as part of their abdominal pain workup, everyone gets a lactic acid and it was normal. Um, they had not done any drug testing before we got down there. Um, and in her case, she was very honest about her resuming smoking. But if you have any questions about that, you can certainly get uh, urine nicotine testing, salicylate testing, or urine toxicology if you are concerned about illicit drug use. There's no doubt, um, we don't commonly talk about it, but certainly cocaine and methamphetamines would increase your risk of marginal ulcers as well. So Dr. McBride, you mentioned a lactic acid level. Um, and I think sometimes the residents and fellows tend to hang their hat on a normal lactic acid level. Can you comment on the utility of a lactic acid level in someone who ends up having an internal hernia? That's an excellent point. So lactic acid, as we all, as most of us know, is built up when either when patients are under resuscitated and can be associated with ischemic bowel. But when patients have a closed loop obstruction, meaning a loop of bowel is caught and that loop of dead bowel is not um, perfused, the lactic acid may not be re-entering the bloodstream. It could be completely caught in that loop of bowel. So they can have a normal lactic acid. It would not be until you got into the operating room and released that loop of bowel that all that built up lactic acid would enter the bloodstream and therefore be detectable on a peripheral blood collection. So absolutely, internal hernias with a closed loop obstruction can have a normal serum lactic acid. 
If it's intermittently obstructing or only partially obstructed, so the vascular supply is not completely obstructed, you could have an elevated lactic acid. So if internal hernia is part of your differential or there's a concern for internal hernia on the imaging study, you cannot be reassured by a normal lactic acid. I think that's a really great review of all of the potential other bariatric complications that can occur. And absolutely some words of wisdom to live by. So when we're retouching back on the initial medical management for marginal ulcers, I, I think there are a couple of things that you need to consider. First and foremost is cessation of any of those risk factors that we have previously mentioned, because without removing the risk factors, the ulcer will not heal. And that's particularly true for the smoking, caffeine, alcohol, all those risk factors we talked about. It's also equally important to, to discuss the medications that need to be started. And that is a proton pump inhibitor. We know, and there was one really nice paper from the Harvard and Brigham and Women's Hospital that talked about uh, capsule PPIs. And their study showed that when you open that capsule, that they had a quicker healing time and reduced endoscopies because of that. And so less interventions for patients. And marginal ulcers can be quite problematic for patients because they can cause severe pain and an inability to tolerate oral intake, and which, which can sometimes subsequently lead to hospitalization and requiring um, interventions such as fluid rehydration. And so I think that's a really important study to, to point out. And the other medication that's really important is caraphate. And caraphate, it also really matters how you take that medication as well. It can be given as either a tablet or a liquid. In general, our experience has been for some patients, the liquid can be very expensive. So the tablet is often prescribed instead. However, it is imperative that when giving the tablet, it must be dissolved in water and it dissolves very easily in a very small amount of water. But if they swallow the tablet whole, you will not achieve the efficacy of caraphate. And so the caraphate is given four times a day. And with the proton pump inhibitor and the caraphate, usually that's enough to take care of the patient's initial symptoms and dramatically improve their pain. In general, the caraphate and the PPI treat the patient's pain far better than any narcotic pain medication. And so in general, we don't give these patients narcotic pain medications, especially when they first present to the ER. Unfortunately, sometimes these patients um, are show, do show up perforated. Dr. Haskins, can you discuss the management of perforated marginal ulcers? Sure. So in addition to identifying the risk factors and starting that empiric treatment, which obviously if they're going to the operating room, we start the antacid medication through their IV. Um, typically, I approach these patients just like any other patient who comes in with a perforated gastric ulcer. Um, so my approach in the operating room is going to be to gram patch that perforation if I can find it. A lot of times by the time the patient has arrived, that um, perforation has, has actually sealed itself. And so if it has sealed itself, um, I will do an endoscopy to confirm that. Sometimes I do lay down something like tissue, which helps kind of keep that omentum um, in the area where it has started to um, patch that uh, perforation. And then I always lay a drain. And then I typically manage those patients, nothing to eat or drink, um, a protonics twice a day through their IV for several days, anywhere, again, dealer's choice, three to five days. And then I'll do um, an upper GI just to make sure that that area 
um, has remained sealed. Obviously, that drain is the window into your abdominal cavity. So if you see bile or anything else concerning, you know that that um, either the patch that you've made or that their omentum has made um, has not totally sealed that area. And so you may have to go back in on that patient. Dr. Haskins, would you consider any empiric treatment of H. pylori for these patients? So that's a great question. I typically do it. Um, I, you know, my approach to that is it can't hurt. It might help. A lot of these patients end up having H. pylori on biopsy, especially if they've had a previous history of H. pylori. Um, I treat it, um, but I typically wait to treat them until I've advanced their diet because most of the antibiotics are easier given orally. I would agree. And some of the pills needed for H. pylori therapy are larger. And so early on, if they're already struggling because they've had some narrowing associated with the ulcer and they're struggling with PO intake, they just can't take the quantity of pills and capsules necessary as part of the therapy. Dr. McBride, a lot of times we see either patients who don't heal their ulcers or have some long-term swellings such as stricture from marginal ulcers. Can you discuss some of the revisional options for these patients? Certainly. So our typical approach is to put them on the medication therapy you mentioned, high-dose PPI, usually you know 20 or 40 milligrams BID with the capsules opened into a small amount of applesauce or into a protein drink, BID, plus the liquid or the crushed caraphate that they've made their own slurry, and do that for at least eight to 12 weeks with the clock starting after they've eliminated all their risk factors. So for example, if they need to use nicotine gum or nicotine patches to get off of the cigarettes, the clock doesn't start until they've also then gotten off of the nicotine gum or patches. So it's really even longer than eight weeks. And then we re-endoscope them to assess for healing. And if they've healed, wonderful. Then we have them continue on the PPI, but they can usually stop the caraphate. And we may even be able to come down on the PPI to lower doses once a day, but we really consider that they should stay on that for life. But if on the other hand, on the repeat endoscopy, they continue to have marginal ulcers, we would recommend a revision because we know that they probably are at risk for perforation. Unfortunately, we don't really have any literature that says what their lifetime risk of perforation or recurrent ulcers or recurrent symptoms are that I've been able to find in the literature. But anecdotally, an experience shows us that it's true, that the ulcers tend to recur, and then they get into a series of bigger and smaller and more symptomatic and less symptomatic. So the surgical revision we usually talk about is we usually get an upper GI to assess the size of their pouch to see if we have room to work. And if there is room to work, we can laparoscopically essentially resect that gastrojejunostomy and redo it. Um, so we're now using a fresh piece of pouch and a fresh piece of the rulin. And in general, I like to redo the gastrojejunostomy using a different technique. So if the first time they had an EEA, I'll think about a linear staple. If they had a linear staple, I'll think about a hand sewn, but try to do something different and certainly make sure that the anastomosis is under no tension. Um, Probably about four or five years ago, we got the ICG technology in our hospital, and we found it to be an excellent adjunct to these revisional procedures. 
One, so that we can identify the left gastric and make sure we preserve it. But secondly, so we can assess the perfusion of the pouch and assess the perfusion of the rue limb, um, really to make sure that we have a well-perfused um, pouch and rue limb before we even start the anastomosis. So everything is under no tension. And if there's any question of tension, we can go retrocolic, retrogastric instead of anticolic, antigastric but then also at the end of the anastomosis, making sure it's well-preserved. Dr. McBride, when would you consider a reversal versus a revision? I think that's a, a very good question. Um, before I think about that though, there are some newer ideas if you really don't think you can revise them. You know, if your pouch is very small, if the abdomen is very hostile, um, there are some ideas. Endoscopically, um, there are some case reports about oversewing the ulcer. We have a very limited experience doing this here in Nebraska. We've only done a very small number of cases, but I will say anecdotally, so far it seems to be working well. Using the overstitch device, putting normal mucosa over the ulcer seems to allow it to heal. Whether that will prove to be a viable long-term solution, we just don't know yet. There are also um, small series talking about doing thoracic uh, VATS, truncal vagotomies versus surgical um, revisions. Uh, there's one study that was done by Dr. Farah Hussein and the group at Oregon Health, where essentially they found, they had about 20 patients in both groups, or sorry, 20 patients total, so very small numbers. But the transthoracic vagotomy patients healed their ulcers as well as redoing the GJ, um, but actually with slightly safer uh, safety profile. And it certainly doesn't burn any bridges, and you could certainly go back into the abdomen and redo the GJ if you needed to. So before you jump to reversal, I think we are realizing there are other options. However, if you have exhausted all of your options, reversal is certainly a possibility. And if the patient absolutely cannot seem to eliminate those risk factors, such as smoking, I think it's an option. If they also are showing other I hate to say non-compliance because I really don't like that word, but you know, if they also are not taking their vitamins and they are consistently having iron deficiency anemia or other vitamin deficiencies, if they are not complying with the recommendations that we have to be a safe post-gastric bypass patient, I think reversal has to be on the table. I think those are some really great potential options for both surgical management and some great non-operative management um, for certain types of patients. So I think that this was a great review of marginal ulcers. We certainly see enough of these patients and hopefully this is helpful to everybody listening. The most important um, initial approach to these patients is number one, to identify and eliminate their risk factors. If the patients are honest with you, that's great. If they're not, just remember that there are a lot of objective tests that you can obtain to eliminate or help identify those risk factors. And then making sure that patients are initially started on a PPI as well as Carafate and that they're opening the capsule 
and that the caraphate is in a liquid form, either the dissolved tablet or if they can get the liquid form of the caraphate. And then just remember all of your surgical and non-operative treatment options for marginal ulcers. Dr. McBride and Dr. Tanner, thank you so much for your, um, your valued and experienced um, opinions on this. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.